Good morning, church. Okay, we're going to be in Genesis 2, 7 today. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath your seat, and it's going to be on page 1. And if you didn't catch that, my name's Jack. <laughs> then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Short and sweet. Have you been with us? That is the shortest scripture reading we've ever had in the life of this church. Every week in Advent, it'll be short. One verse from the Old Testament telling us about King Jesus in a sort of uh, mysterious, prophetic way. This is what you're hoping for, Israel. And we as Christians now get to look back and say God was faithful to his promises. So a couple just housekeeping before I get into the word of God. Uh, all these decorations, uh, Kayla Pettis, if you don't know her, she is wonderful. Aubrey loves her, yes. She's in the kids' room, so you can't see her now. She's serving, but she did this all after Thanksgiving. She's wonderful help, and it just looks amazing, and I love Christmas. So that's the first thing. Thank you, Kayla. The second thing, Christmas tradition here at Redemption, across all 10 Redemption congregations, is we do an Advent offering. We do a Christmas Eve offering. We take extra money, uh, extra tithes and offerings to give away to specific purposes. And this week, in each congregation, sort of gets to choose their own theme. Our theme this year is just fatherlessness. And we're going to be giving to a foster care and adoption organization that will fund it for two years. We're going to do that. We're going to give to a ministry that I'm excited to tell you about next week called We Reconcile for adult children trying to reconcile with their fathers that they don't have relationships with. And then we're going to give to Benevolence, just which is our way as a local congregation to bless widows and orphans, which is what the Bible tells the church to be about. Do this. You can screw up a lot of things, but don't screw up loving orphans and widows. So we'll uh, talk more about that each week. We'll kind of unveil a little bit more, but that's what we get to do as a church family. But now we get to dive into Advent. I love Christmas more than anything in the world. I am that guy. Um, I did not grow up in a house that way. So the question to start us off is, what is your December 26th going to look like? So I'll tell you what my December 26th is going to look like. The decorations are staying up <laughs> till Valentine's. <laughs> In my house, growing up as a kid, we would open the gifts. It'd be about 8.15 a.m., and my mom would have the tree on her shoulder, and she would be walking it out the front door, chucking it, and then taking everything out. Because Christmas wasn't her thing, because her family was a busted-up family, and Christmas was just a reminder of this life is busted. One of my favorite authors had a blog I was reading the other day about Christmas, and he says this, every year on December 26, I'm sitting in a room littered with torn wrapping paper, contemplating all the dirty dishes in the sink and the Christmas decor that seems to have outstayed its welcome, and I think, was that it? And the usual platitudes just won't do, because every year I remember that Jesus is the reason for the season, and I also remember to keep the Christ in Christmas. Wise men still seek him after all, but I feel like even these annual religious fortune cookies have gone stale. Is it possible that Christmas just isn't all that it's cracked up to be? The answer is yes. Of course Christmas isn't all it's cracked up to be. How could it be? If eternity is what our hearts are made for, then even a lifetime 
of annual festivities, no matter how prolonged, cannot come close to soothing the ache inside each one of us. This is both the beauty and the burden of the Christmas holidays, even for Christians who love them all out of proportion. Christmas is delicious, but it's really only a hint of a foretaste of the truly blessed hope we have. I think about this every year when we get out our nativity set out of storage. There's something profoundly metaphorical in the act of placing baby Jesus in a position of honor in our living room for a month and then in putting him back in a dusty box crammed into a cobwebby corner of our garage. The, the nativity set, like the holiday itself, can only point to what it fulfills. It cannot do the fulfilling. So what is Advent about? Advent simply means coming or arrival. What is Advent about for us as a church? It's about pointing to he who can fulfill. All this stuff is great. I had the world's largest blow up on top of my roof because I'm that guy. I'm going to drink more eggnog than any person in this church. I am that guy. But all that only is a hint of a foretaste of what we all want. And what we want is a king. That's our series. We have a king. We're going to talk about the King Jesus. And as a church, this Advent season, we get to celebrate the fact that we have a king. Those of you that have been tracking with us, since July, we've been in the Old Testament, walking through Saul, David, Solomon, and Israel shouted this, we want a king. That's not us. And the world now does not shout, but it longs for those The things in your heart that are not being fulfilled, what's happening is your heart is saying, I need a king. And we as a church, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we get to in this season, in this Advent season, declare, maybe through tears, maybe through smiles. It's not tied to a particular emotion. Every emotion comes under the lordship of Jesus. You get to declare that we have a king. We have a king. Paul in the book of Corinthians says this about the Christian life. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but never destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Tell us what to do, Paul. So, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We do not lose heart. Why? Because we have a king. We are being transformed day by day. How can we be so confident that God is doing something? Because we have a king. We're not longing for a king. We're not hoping for a king. We have a king. So what do we do? Paul says we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, the eggnog and the blow-ups and Moon Valley Christmas light parade and your grandkids and the gift you're longing for. We fix our eyes on that which we cannot see. So in this Advent season, that's all I want, is us to all kind of a little bit turn our gaze towards that which we cannot see, only by eyes of faith. And we all need more of that, because all of us get distracted by the shiny things down here. 
on earth. So let's just stop and pray and just prepare our hearts as a collective church family for Advent. So I'm just going to give a little space for some quiet. Jesus, thank you for your first advent. Thank you for the promise of a second. God, as we look ahead to December 25th, and more realistically to December 26th, when all the season begins to fade away, we as Christians are those who have a hope that is bigger than any festival or tradition or party or gift a relationship. We have the king of the universe who has come once to forgive us and is coming back again to give us life with him forever. So God, in whatever small way our church can be helpful to fix our eyes on you, I pray that we would do that, whether it's the worship team, all of our volunteers working so hard, me up here in the preaching. If it doesn't turn our eyes towards you, it's not worth it. So God, help us turn our eyes towards you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what kind of king is he? Here's, I'm going to give you just the series rundown. We did, this is only being done at North Mountain. So just little titles. Hands in the dirt is today. Virgin in a barn. Scars before the blood. Becoming the king. And Christmas Eve, a child is born. Again, one verse for each of those to get us to see we have a king. Today we look at the king who has dirty hands. Here's our big idea if you're a note taker. It's simple. We have a king whose hands are in the dirt. We have a king whose hands are in the dirt. And this morning we're going to walk through four reminders, four beautiful reminders that we have a king with dirty hands. And I'll explain how I got to that language in a second here. So we are looking at the king with dirty hands. So here's a trivia question to kick us off. What is the first prophetic promise of Jesus found in the Bible? So you could go to, there's something about a virgin giving birth. It's in Micah, I think. Yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's somewhere in the Old Testament. I don't know. We got... We go back. Moses in Deuteronomy says, there's coming a prophet who's even better than me. Before that, Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, says, through you, your seed is going to bless the entire world. Maybe it's Genesis 12. That's the first time. Here's what I learned a while back, and you're supposed to learn stuff and use it to bless people. I've learned this and use it just to prove that I'm smarter than the people around me at the time. What is the first prophetic word spoken? Genesis 3.15. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelia, first gospel. And it's God speaking to the serpent a curse and a judgment. Because Adam and Eve do what they did. If you're not familiar with the story, they go... They eat what they shouldn't be eating and touching, and then God walks in on the scene, and he starts announcing judgment, and he talks to the serpent. He says, here's what's going to happen. The seed of woman is going to bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. 
Meaning there's going to be some sort of cosmic showdown between the seed of Eve and you serpent, Satan himself. Something's going to happen and somebody's head is going to be bruised and somebody's heel is going to be bruised. First gospel promise. And I would say that with confidence and walk out and say, yeah, I'm theologically trained, suckers. I was listening to a podcast with a pastor I liked the other day. His wife describes him this way. Always confident, sometimes right. That's me. <laughs> Always confident, sometimes right. Because I was talking with Anthony Hernandez about this, and he very humbly and graciously said, I know everyone says Genesis 3.15, but I kind of think it's Genesis 2.7. And I said, what? Genesis 2.7, which Jack just read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. There's nothing prophetically spoken there, but there's an image given about how God interacts with his creation. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, it starts off with the beginning. Genesis 1 is God creates the light and the dark, the heavens and the earth, the universe and earth, the seas and the land, the mountains and the valleys, the buffalo and the goldfish, the carp, everything gets created in this beautiful display of God's magnificent, beautiful, creative power. That's Genesis 1. Just to give you sort of some pictures of what Genesis 1 produced, here's from a famous image came out in July. It's from the James Webb Telescope. You guys saw this back in July if you were paying attention to all the news. What's fascinating, just Christmas trivia, that one on the left is Stefan's, I think it's called Quintet, but it's featured on It's a Wonderful Life. Whenever the angels are talking, they're like, hey, we got to go help this guy. He's having a hard time. That image, like the old school image, the original image, the one on the left, are the angels that do the talking and the blessing and It's a Wonderful Life. This is updated. This is from July this year, and that's five galaxies, a picture that's like, if it was stereo, it's like ultra Dolby surround sound now. If it was black and white, it's 4K HD. That one on the right is a picture of stars being formed, just all the gases and all that going into the process of creation. So Genesis 1 is this. God speaks. Stars. Galaxy, 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 galaxy. Probably the most famous image that came out of this last July, these telescope images, is this next one. So some of you saw that. This is a picture of thousands of galaxies. In the most high-def picture of space any human has ever seen. Thousands of galaxies. The way scientists, astronomers, want you to understand the scope of what's there. said, so imagine you're standing, you're a human, and you grab a grain of sand, and you hold it up to the sky. That grain of sand represents that there. The rest of the sky is still all the universe that has been untapped, unphotographed. So that is thousands of galaxies, a grain of sand on the whole picture as you look up into the sky. That is crazy. That's God speaking. And it's all there. And it's beautiful and it's magnificent. And we've seen a grain of sand worth of it through a telescope. That's all we've seen. God created all that. Genesis 2, if you flip over now, as God sort of zooming in, 
to what is his most prized possession. Adam and Eve. He loves all that he's created. It all shouts his glory in its own way. But God loves those made in his image. Adam and Eve. And what we just read, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Then the man became a living creature. The theological word is anthropomorphic, something like that. A lot of too many syllables. It's how do you describe something so that humans can understand it? Well, you got to use human language. So even this, like, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust. What literally didn't happen is God's hands did not come down. But that's the image we got to have, is that creator that, that made that universe then reaches down onto planet Earth. It's not the biggest planet. It's not the first planet. It's not the most powerful planet. It has nothing of significance where it can say, I'm the best one in this universe, other than the creator reaches down, picks up some dirt, and we have Adam and we have Eve. And I think that's a beautiful image. And what Anthony was saying is that's how God works. He does not keep a distance. He create, Even though he could because of his excellence and his holiness and his majesty, he could have just stayed back and let it do what it's going to do. And it would have been beautiful and mag- magnificent. But he reaches down, picks up dirt, breathes life for the first time into man and woman. And forever, from that moment on, that's always how he works with us. His hands are always in the dirt with us and for us and through us. And that takes us to our first reminder I want us to know is that God's hands are in the dirt in making us. God's hands are in the dirt in making us. We have a king who is personally involved in making every single one of us. Part of what's tricky as a teacher, preacher, is Advent, you, if you like kind of getting the aha moments, like, oh, I never heard that. Advent's not exactly the time for that. Because Advent is what it is. Like, don't screw this up. Don't get too creative. So this message is not like uber creative. Especially if you walked in church or walked with Jesus for any length of time. I'm not going to say anything where you walk out of here like, mind was blown. I'd rather fill your hearts with a deeper longing to see the one whose hands get dirty for you. So we have a king who gets his hands dirty in making us. And I want to remind us each of how the Bible describes now the creation of you. Claire, Kari, Aubrey, Josh. This is how God describes his creation of each and every individual in this room. It's out of Psalm 139. I think I have a screen for it. This is our boy King David, describing the heart behind God creating us. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When I was yet, there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. How did you get here? How did I get here? How did all the sweet little babies getting born get here? 
David would use these words. You were formed. You were knitted. You were made. You were intricately woven. Summary statement. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. Why are you 5'10"? Why do you have brown hair? Why do you have a receding hairline? Why can't you grow that mustache you want? Why is anything about you the way it is? Here's what we have. We have science that can explain sort of the how to all of it. How a man and a woman come together, what happens, how all the genetics, how all the DNA, how, how redheads become, all that can be explained by science. But you said, but why am I this? And if you ask the collective scientific answer, unless someone says, you know what? There's a book that some people say was written by God for us. Here's what that book would say. God made you. So just, I know that's not profound. You can go, you can listen to podcasts on the way home and blow your mind theologically. But as we enter this Advent season, we serve a king who knows all of us intricately because he made us. Now, that does not make all of us unique because there's attributes we all share. You look at DNA. We're not unique like the only one ever, but we are special because God made us, each and every one of us. I mean, that is a profound truth that this world needs to know. Here's David's summary statement. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God made you. He knitted you. He intricately wove you together. Now, here's what's great in a church with sort of all the demographics represented. Some of you like that is, you don't need to hear that. I get it. I check that box easily. But here's what I know to be a fact. As the church invites in the next generation, younger people, that is not a given on any young person's radar anymore in the cultural world we live in. Here's what's placed at them at a very young age. Hey, you make you whatever you want to make you to be. And it's crushing our young people. Those of you that have young daughters, you're like, this is my life. Because they're being told, well, maybe you could be this, or maybe you are this, or maybe you had this one thought one time, so maybe you should chase that down. And we have a ton of young people that have this burden of like, what? who made me? I was at this talk of an author I really appreciate talking about gender issues and the Q&A after he said, somebody asked him, somebody is a John, and they want to know it will go by Joanna. How do you navigate that? And his answer was interesting. It's like it depends on proximity. So if they're like distant, distant neighbors that you aren't, then just kind of do whatever to keep peace. But the closer they get to you, like in your family, your church family, I would have some very real talks with them. And essentially, I would tell them this. I would want them to know that they were made. Their identity comes from outside themselves, from a creator God who formed, knitted, made, intricately wove them together. And then beyond that, even their name was given to them. I'm Joshua. I did not pick that. 
And he said, there's something beautifully theologically true about that. Our identities must be given to us from outside ourselves. Where did we get our identity? Just so you know, Psalm 139. He made us. God made you. How did he make you? With his hands in the dirt of creation, knitting you together in your mother's womb so you would be exactly who you are. The stuff that you love about yourself, the stuff you don't get about yourself, all the physical, all the mental, all the physiological, all of it. God made it. You are made by God. God made us, and he named us. And then here's the Christmas story. Here's the apex of Christmas. Here's what we come to celebrate. All that is now true of Jesus. He stepped down into creation to play a part of being an image bearer like you and I with human flesh. It's our second beautiful reality is we have a king whose hands are in the dirt becoming like us. So all that about me and about you, Jesus didn't keep a distance like an artist looking at his canvas and saying, that's nice. Or Beethoven listening to his music or a movie producer making a great script. He stepped into creation for us. St. Augustine, a famous African theologian from Many, many years ago, here's his description of the Christmas reality. Man's maker was made, man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain might thirst, the light might sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that the strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. He's not just a great artist that creates beautiful things, you and I included in that. He steps into his own creation. The maker moves into being made. And I want to read the birth story of Jesus from two angles. You don't need to, you can turn there if you want, but Luke chapter 2. Verse 1, here's how Jesus' birth is described from the ground level. The quote there that Augustine gave. This is the birth of our Savior. This is why we have lights and trees and candles. This is what was recorded 2,000 years ago. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Flip over to John chapter 1. How do the heavens describe this moment? On the ground, there's this couple. They're going to do this political thing they're supposed to do, get registered. She's very, very pregnant. She delivers. There's no room for her. They go into a manger. On this dirty floor, she delivers a baby. That's the description on the ground. As God narrates, how does he see what's happening? John, I think, gives the best language for it. 
John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is the new story coming out of Bethlehem? There is no new story. It's a young teenage girl giving birth to a poor baby from some little ethnic minority, the Jewish people, during a Roman Empire. Nobody pays attention except for God telling some shepherds and some angels, and hey, watch this. What is the new story God says? He says, the word who made the universe became flesh and dwelt among us. Augustine would say this, man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That's the Christmas story. No other religion carries that same story. They carry elements and characters and similar vocabulary, but nobody says God, creator God, uncreated, no beginning and no end, created it all, and then at some point in history spoke, and now he entered into history in this little manger, Jesus of Nazareth. Only Christianity says that. I was talking to my neighbor the other day, Jewish guy, he's walking down, he was watching me put up the blow up. He's like, can I just watch this? I just want to see how this goes. I said, sure, man, video, whatever you want to do. I was like, what do you celebrate? He's like, yeah, all of it, Hanukkah and Christmas, we got the tree. And like, everybody wants all the festivities and festivals. And, but Christianity is telling a story about God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. His hands have always been dirty from creation when he spoke Adam and Eve into existence. And then in the incarnation, he now speaks himself into existence through the same means that you and I all enter this world. Through the birth from his mother, Mary. Now here's the question. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Short answer is love. Longer answer is it had to be this way. For love to get received the way it needed to. There's an old Paul Harvey story. You know, I... I would hear, I became a Christian later in life, and I would hear preachers give these stories of what radio personalities tell, and I'm like, that guy seems old. He's telling a story about somebody telling a story on the radio. <laughs> and I always thought, when's the day coming when I have a story about a guy telling a story on the radio? It's here, November 27, 2022. <laughs> But I remember hearing this before I was a Christian. My dad was a Christian. He was dragging us to church. And I remember hearing this during the Advent series. I think from John Paulton, actually, Carson. And here's the story. There's one bitterly cold night. A farmer heard a thumping sound on his kitchen storm door. Standing near the stove, he looked out the window to see what was causing the noise. The light from the kitchen cast a glow through the glass storm door into the ground outside. There he saw some tiny sparrows trying repeatedly to fly into the obvious warmth of the kitchen. Instead, the birds kept beating against the glass to no avail. Compassion for the cold little creatures caused the farmer to bundle up, trudge through the snow, open the barn to give the birds a warmer place to rest. He turned on the lights and tossed some hay in a corner. Then he sprinkled a trail of crumbs to lead them to the barn. But the sparrows, afraid of him, 
sat in the darkness where they had scattered as he came out of the house. The farmer tried circling behind the birds to drive them toward the barn, then tossing crumbs in the air toward them, and then going back into his house to see if they would fly into the barn. Still the sparrow seemed paralyzed by the cold and fear. They couldn't understand that this huge man was actually trying to help them. So he went back into his kitchen, watched the doomed sparrows through the window. And as he stared at the sad scene, a thought occurred to him. If only I could become a bird for a moment, I would not frighten them. And I could show them the way to safety and warmth. That is the Christian message. That is the Christmas message. Big, holy, scary God had to come down and become like us to lead us to safety and to warmth, not in a one winter cold night, but for eternity. Hebrews, the author describes it this way. Why Christmas? Hebrews 2 says, He had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation and forgiveness for the sins of his people. How are those birds ever going to get in the house? They need a bird that looks like them, smells like them, but has a better way than their current way. How are we ever going to have a better life? We need someone who looks like us, smells like us, but is different than us in this one way. Lacks the destructive tendency in all of us to sin and to lead others to sin. And that's what we have in Jesus. And he's here now. And he came takes us to our third reality. His hands are now in the dirt, forgiving us. Why did Jesus put on flesh? Paul Harvey gets at it. There's lots of good answers for why God would put on flesh. Like our most theologically avoidant friends, Christianity is not my thing. There's still a good group of people that look at Jesus and think, I've got a lot to learn from him. He's an example of how to live. There's a lot of good reasons to say why Jesus came down to earth. There is one high priority answer. Why did Jesus come to earth? Because that's the only way he could deal with sin once and for all. And how did he deal with sin? He did not deal with it at a distance. He put on flesh and dwelt among us. And then he walked around forgiving those who did not deserve forgiveness. And I just want to read a story of, it's one of the most beautiful gospel stories of Jesus. It's about a man with leprosy. Leprosy is sort of like, I mean, nobody really sees it anymore. It's still around, but it's like the AIDS pandemic and COVID pandemic, and then all this religious backstory all bottled up into one. And if you were a leopard, if you had leprosy, you were out. And religious law, Jewish law would say, if you walked into any setting, you had to shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean. So everyone knew there was an unclean person here. There was a sinner here. There was somebody dirty here, filthy here. We need to get away from this person. If you had leprosy, you had no hope of anyone ever entering into a relationship with you. Your family, your friends, your, the girl you really like, all of that was off, off limits. Leprosy, leprosy. You were like a walking billboard of the uncleanness of this world, of the sin in this world. And there's a story in Matthew Jesus comes down from a mountain, great crowds follow him, and behold, it says, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So he's walking with his disciples, picture the chosen, they're walking, you know. A leper comes, kneels down before him, all the other disciples are like, 
leper says, you can make me clean. Short, sweet, Jesus stretched out his hand and touches him. I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Why did he do that? Because he loved that man. Why else did he do that? Because he wants us to see this is how forgiveness and cleansing works. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot fix this problem on our own. We have to get our uncleanness off us on someone else. My dad tells a story of when I was a kid. He's like, I just, he's, he's one of those parents who loved when kids were little. And I'm like, I get it. They, it's sweet time. But he tells a story of me being really sick one time. He's like, and I just wanted to make you better. I wanted that sickness out of you. So I laid on the couch, took my shirt off, put you on top of me, turned up the heat, and I was hoping that you would sweat out all that sickness on top of me. And you're like, all you doctors in here are like, <laughs> sounds like a plumber. Exactly. That's, what, that's a plumber solution to a doctor's problem. I just want it all on me. Just get it on me. Just get it on me. That's what Jesus does. Like, he doesn't deal with sin at a distance in a back room as a lawyer and say, forgiven. He touches the leopard. He walks around and cleanses, 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 and it culminates with him on a cross dying, not with just dirty hands, but bloody hands, so that you and I might be forgiven. Like, how much forgiven? That much forgiven? Completely forgiven. All of the sickness is now gone. Why? Because Jesus gets his hands dirty. Now, we could end there, and that's a great way to end. The cross of Jesus, I preach that every Sunday. He made us. He became like us. He forgave us. But I want to remind us of one final truth as we enter this holiday season together as a church and individually. Jesus' hands are still at work, and they're still getting dirty in giving us power and filling us. We are not just forgiven children of God. We now have the Holy Spirit living in us. And through us. His hands are still, like Jesus says, he's still at work in this world. Well, how is he at work? Through his sons and daughters who are filled by his spirit now are his body here on earth. And how do we do that? With his power. I was watching football yesterday. Went to TCU. If you don't know, TCU is undefeated. They're just looking. Some of you don't care. Like TCU, what is that? uh, Texas Christian University. The Horned Frogs. But they spent 15 minutes like, why is TCU good now? Like, what happened? TCU was garbage. They were, they were good when Gary Patterson was running it back in the day. They had LaDainian Thomas and they had it. And then they've been garbage. What's changed? And they spent 15 minutes talking about one guy, the strength and conditioning coach. They said, they're bigger and they're stronger than they've ever been. Period. Why is TCU good? Because they're stronger now. Period. They're running the same plays. They got the same schemes, but they are stronger. They are more powerful. They are stronger than all their opponents so far. Christian, you are stronger than you realize. You are stronger than all the world's wisdom and resource and strength and money. Why? Because you have Jesus Christ indwelling you. He is not done with his hands getting down in the dirt with you. He lives inside of you. Right now, Galatians says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, you are forgiven, but as we walk forward into whatever hard situations you're in, family, doubts, fears, anxieties, pain, 
health issues, spouse, ex-spouse. Like, we have a a million stories in this little room. How are we going to walk forward into December 26th with any sort of hope? You have the God of the universe who created all living inside of you. Peter says it this way. Everything you need, you need, I need for life and godliness has been given to you by the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen? We have a king who got his hands dirty, and he's still getting his hands dirty. He forgave you, he made you, and now he lives inside of you. This is a wonderful Christmas season. It'll have his ups and its downs and its ups, but we want to, as a church, stop and look at the king, and we have a good, beautiful, gracious king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the image of just the hands in the dirt. I think of my grandpa, who was a carpenter for all those years, and I can still picture his hands. My dad, who has been turning wrenches his whole life in his strong hands. And how much more do we have a strong and powerful Father in heaven with gracious and powerful hands that made us You smiled as you created us. There was not a hint of disappointment as you knit us together. And there was not an ounce of hesitation as you took on flesh in the incarnation. And there's not a hint of regret in you now walking forward and touching us and cleansing us and forgiving us. And now there's hope, only hope, that you are not done working yet. That the spirit of the Christmas season of a God who comes to this earth to get his hands dirty is still true. And it's true in the church and in each one of us. So God, help us today in some small way remind ourselves of these truths yet again. God, for those in this room who may be hearing this and don't believe this, I pray that the love of a God who would get his hands dirty would overwhelm them and they would submit and give their life to you. God, thank you for this time we get. What a sweet season as a church family to come together and set our eyes upon you until one day we get to look at you with eyes of flesh and not just these eyes of faith. We love you. Christ's name we pray. Amen.